0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey, everybody, this episode of Other People is sponsored by Other Voices Queretaro. I think that's how you pronounce it Queretaro, Q U E R E T A R O. It's a city in Mexico. And Other Voices Queretaro is a vibrant, multifaceted writing program set, you guessed it, in Queretaro, Mexico. It focuses on both fiction and creative nonfiction, as well as the ins and outs of contemporary publishing. The program was co-launched by Gina Frangelo and Stacey Beerline, long-standing business partners editing Other Voices magazine and Other Voices books, which is now an imprint of DeZanc Books. So if you're looking for a great writing retreat, a great summer writing program, look no further. Other Voices Ketataro is happening this summer, July 5th through July 14th, 2013. It will offer three morning workshops to choose from, led by authors Pam Houston, Rob Roberge, and Joseph Novakovich. And there will be an evening wine and publishing section for the entire group. There will also be two group excursions. For more details, please visit othervoicesqueretaro.com. It's a writing program in Mexico. Go and participate in it. Dios mio.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every
1: stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, everybody,
1: here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is my voice in your head. This is about people who write stuff for people. Thank you for being here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, things are good. Things are busy as usual, and uh, I want to start with a thought quickly. Uh, I don't know if you saw this on the show's website, otherpeoplepod.com, but uh, I posted this past week another installment of listener feedback, and I've been doing that with you know some degree of regularity over the past few weeks uh, at the show's website uh, because you know I get a lot of emails, and I figure it's good to share and to give listeners a voice and to let you know to let people see. So, you know, if you want to read the listener feedback, just go to otherpeoplepod.com. It's easy to find. And along those lines, one piece of criticism in particular strikes me as being very much on point uh, regarding my repeated inclusion of gender politics in the show. This whole experiment of mine that I've undertaken this year, trying to read more female writers because I'm a dad and I have a daughter uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it occurs to me that I need to stop talking about that. I agree. And people, you know, one, one, uh, listener in particular pointed it out to me and I think it's true. I'm annoyed with myself for talking about that too much. So if you listen regularly and you've heard me, uh, you know, blabber about that repeatedly, my apologies. And if you haven't uh, listened regularly, then disregard. Uh, and you know, if you do listen retroactively, I apologize preemptively. (laughs) Uh, Otherwise, uh, what's going on? Well, I was talking with a friend of mine just the other day about sex writing. And, uh, you know, it started innocently enough. We were sitting there talking about writing in general. And it was basically the same old conversation. How to make a living. What books are selling. How to survive in a quote-unquote post-literate culture. And so on. And uh, somewhere along the line, Fifty Shades of Grey came up, as it sometimes does, uh, bitterly in literary circles. And my friend and I joked about trying to write something similar under a pseudonym in a desperate attempt to chase the market, or something like that. And uh, then just moments ago, as I was sitting here trying to think about what what to say in today's monologue, it occurred to me that I forgot to acknowledge the Bad Sex and Fiction Award... For 2012 I completely spaced it Uh, I think I did this in 2011 I read some excerpts uh, Shortly after the award was handed out uh, Or shortly before And I think people really liked it But uh, for some reason I forgot to do it in 2012 So uh, I figured better late than never And for those of you who aren't aware The Bad Sex and Fiction Award is handed out uh, Annually by the Literary Review Over in the UK It's very funny And it's sort of gross And uh, this year's winner was Nancy Houston, who took the prize for her novel Infrared, which is about a photographer who takes pictures of her lovers during intercourse. (laughs) So uh, I'm not going to read all the finalists because uh, I fear that would take too long and could become tedious very quickly. But I will read a few for you for your uh, distinct entertainment pleasure. And I will conclude uh, with the winner, Nancy Houston. Okay, so uh, let's get some music going. And uh, here is an excerpt from a book called The Divine Comedy by Craig Rain. And he came like a wubbering springboard. His ejaculate jumped the length of her arm. Eight diminishing gouts, the first too high for her to lick, right on the shoulder. And then here's an excerpt from Rare Earth, a book by Paul Mason. He switched to some ancient step language as he ejaculated, blubbering and incoherent. Chun Li faked an orgasm, keeping her mind focused on an 8th century lyric of sadness, and her face still as a lake in winter. Kunbish collapsed below the neck of the horse, where he clung now, like a forlorn circus rider, as the steppe cacophony segued seamlessly into the kind of trickling stream plus birdsong music they play in mental hospitals. To calm things down Uh, Here's an excerpt from Tom Wolfe's novel Back to Blood But then the tips of her breasts Became erect on their own And the flood in her loins Washed morals, despair And all other abstract assessments Away in a cloud Of some sort of divine cologne of his now his big generative jockey (laughs) was inside her pelvic saddle riding, riding, riding and she was eagerly swallowing it swallowing it, swallowing it with the saddle's own lips and maw and finally uh, we have the winner Nancy Houston from her novel Infrared when our bodies unite for the third time, we leave all theaters behind. What happens then has as little to do with the libertinage prized by the French, oh, the blasphemers, the precious, precocious ejaculators, the nasty, naughty boys, the cruel futurs and futurs, as with the healthy, egalitarian intercourse championed by Americans. Who hand out bachelor's degrees in G points, masters in masturbation, and PhDs in endorphins? Uh, so there you have it, folks. And you know, I gotta say, I sort of feel like maybe Tom Wolfe uh, got robbed. I'm sort of feeling like that. That or the guy who wrote about the jumping ejaculate. Uh, but then again, uh, there's no such thing as a winner when it comes to the arts, right? There's no such thing as winners and losers in literature,
0: right? Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond.
1: And uh, I know you may be asking yourself, wait a minute, is he the son of tennis legend Billy Jean King? And uh, the answer here would be no. Owen has a new novel out from uh, Scribner. It's called Double Feature, and it is generating significant literary buzz. Uh, I'm very pleased to have him here on the program. We had a lot to talk about, and I feel like we had a good conversation, uh, which I'm very pleased to get to share with you right now. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Owen King, and his new novel, once again, is called Double Feature.
2: I am on my, uh, my couch in my office in upstate New York, and uh, I'm just, uh, I'm stretched, I'm, I'm in repose now, speaking <laughs> to you. All
1: right, I'm picturing like a Hugh Hefner bathrobe, is that happening? No.
2: No, it's not quite. It's, I'm not quite. I was I was working previously, and I can't work in a state of of um, of undress. So I am I am uh, decent.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, might, it reminds me of like Robert Caro, that biographer of uh, LBJ, and how he has that office in Manhattan and he wears a suit every day to write. I mean, that, that's a pretty extreme situation. But there's something to be said for getting a little dressed up to go to work, even though you know we theoretically could work in pajamas.
2: <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, it's hard. To, it's just so hard to take yourself seriously. But, you know, I think other people are different. I, I remember reading that, uh, oh, I think it was a New Yorker article that had some, you know, some people objected to for some pretty good reasons, but uh, by Franzen about Edith Wharton and how she would write and bet and uh, yeah, ki- flip the, he- he- the pages onto the floor. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, he got killed on that. I mean, I remember running some stuff at the Nervous Breakdown. There were a lot of hostile or heated reactions to that.
2: Can you refresh my memory? Not to just digress completely, but what was the what was well, about the, it?
1: Here's the thing: like this is whenever something like this happens in uh, the literary world, I kind of know a, like a little bit about it, but I never really get in there, or I don't typically get in there. But what what I understand from like an arm's length is that he actually made fun of her looks. Like, her,
2: oh, he... that's right, yeah, that was that was a poor decision. Yeah,
1: and so then you know there were there were obviously some some responses to that, but uh... yeah. So, uh, anyhow, uh, we should say, you know, just for the record, that we've known each other for a few years. You know, going back to when uh, my book came out, your first collection and novella came out, Um, you know, we met when? I guess it was 2007, maybe?
2: I... Yeah, or two thousand six. It was it was right in there. It was it was several it was like uh six, seven years ago. So yeah. been a, we've known each other a long time.
1: Yeah, and I remember uh you and uh, Scott Snyder came out to Los Angeles for I think it was like your one of your first West Coast readings and uh that was where we I think actually met. But.
2: I think that's my first and only West Coast <laughs> reading to this day. But and then I saw you read from uh attention deficit disorder in uh New York at a Barnes and Noble that's Sadly gone. Is it really? You
1: know, that one's gone.
2: Yeah, that was a weird one. It was. Was it in Tribeca?
1: It was somewhere downtown. I forget. I just remember there was like a pizza. I got a slice of pizza yeah. beforehand. It was like sort of like uh, the opening of Louis. Like I got like a slice of pizza uh-huh. and I walked in and
2: read. But um, it was a little one. I did it. I did a reading there once, two maybe. Uh, but there's still quite a few of them in the city. But that that one is not. That one is no longer.
1: Uh, so now you've got this new book coming out, and uh, I've been it's re- out. It's out. Yeah, I mean, I've been reading about the. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of like, g- uh, great like press coverage of it, and you know, you've been getting a lot of questions. And I feel bad bringing it up, but I feel like it's sort of incumbent upon me as the uh, interviewer to ask these questions because I think my listenership wants to wants to know. You know, it's it's an area of interest. Uh, so I'm sure you know it's coming. <laughs> yeah, I, yep, go for it. Yeah, we'll get it out of the way, and then we can move on to other things. But um, you come from a literary family, obviously. Your father is Stephen King. Uh, your mother is a writer. Your brother is a writer. Yep. Your sister is the only non-writer in the family, correct? Right. My wife is a writer. And your wife is a writer. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you're in the thick of it. But, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty notable literary legacy that you're a part of your, you know, your father's had enormous success. Your brother's had success. And so how does that, I mean, what's it like, you know, what's it like to, to try to write books, uh, with that there?
2: Well, you know, I think that, uh, it's funny, this, I haven't thought to say this recently. Uh, maybe I never have. I, I, one way it not as competitive, uh, and maybe it would be different if, for, it isn't competitive for me, and maybe it would be different if I had chosen to write about different kinds of things. You know, my first book was about uh, the 2000 election and uh, the grandson of a union organizer. Uh, and the new book is about, uh, it's about filmmaking, but it's 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 also mostly a comedy about, uh, well, maybe not mostly, but it's largely a comedy about what we find entertaining now uh, in American in contemporary America and, and what that says about us. So I don't, I don't write scary stories. I don't, my expectations for uh, the width and breadth of my audience is not especially outsized. You know, I feel really lucky if, you know, I'm overjoyed if a thousand people want to, want to read something I write. So I'm not like, uh, uh what my what my dad and my brother are doing uh is just like at another level uh in terms of its um uh you know like the cultural they make big noise you know
1: yeah well that's <laughs> uh, what I,
2: what i'm doing is a lot quieter i'm still proud of it um but i don't I don't feel competitive, and I think that's really lucky for me because uh, if i if I was competitive, you know I'd be like uh, in rookie ball and uh, they'd be playing for you know for the angels.
1: well, you know that's the thing about literary fiction is that it's a it's a smaller wedge of the pie by a long shot. and I think that you know I was sort of naive about it. I don't come from um, you know a super literary family, and I didn't know much about the business when I started, but uh, I sort of had this kind of antiquated vision of what the American reading public was hungry for, you know, and I it was sort of like in this like lost generation or like beat generation vision. I don't know what it was, but it you know, n- needless to say, uh, reality has been quite different, you know. And my, <laughs> I, I've, I've kind of, I've kind of, uh, you know, reconfigured my. Uh, expectations around that and you sort of have to, you know, but when you went into it, did you say to yourself, you know what, I'm not even going to try to go. I mean, cause like I, I can't even, I can't imagine that writing like horror fiction would be that appealing if your dad is Stephen King, because it, you can't really outdo that. Uh, not that you need to.
2: Yeah. And I think that that was uh, in terms of the things that I've chosen to write about. I think that I always felt like I needed to do something that was really different um, if If that was the career choice I was going to make, and i and I didn't know for a long time that's what I wanted to do, but at some point when I was in college and I had been writing things, I think that I figured out you know oh, uh, not only does this does does writing these more comedic kinds of things feel really natural to me, I think it's a really good place for me to go uh just in terms of my sanity um, I just uh and I should say, don't get me wrong, I, I would. there's nothing I would like better than to attract a large audience. You know, I don't think there's any shame in that. Sure, um, yeah. I've never understood sort of, uh, you know, clinging to obscurity. Uh, I want to sell lots of books so that I can write lots of books, if that makes any sense. Of course. But uh, yeah, I think that I, I love horror fiction. Um, I love all sorts of different genres of, of fiction and film. But I think that, in, in terms of writing it, my dad is, is such a big shadow, and my, my brother gets all the credit in the world for sort of fearlessly diving in there. Uh, for me, that would, have, uh, that would be daunting to do. Uh, but then on top of it, there's it's just not... As much as I like to read things uh, that are fantastical and uh, not what you would call straight-ahead literary fiction, as much as I love all that stuff and, and spend lots of time with it, I'm not so good at writing it. You know, I have tried my hand at some things like that, and I have a little bit of a hard time making the leaps that's, that are required, you know, like, um, you know, when you got to, like, put a monster in there, you know? I, I love reading it, but when it's, when it's my time to write something like that, I just fail, you know, like I'm not I, I don't know if it's like a if it's a failure of imagination or an inability to kind of lose myself in it. But I just I just have never been able to really do that. And I have dipped my toe into some, you know, fantastical stuff. But it was it was always a huge, huge undertaking for me and and not easy. I wrote a superhero story for this anthology I edited um, and, uh, you know, getting in the headspace where I could. I could pull that off was really difficult. Uh, and I think it's maybe just not my, my great skill. Well, assuming I have a great skill.
1: Well, I mean, you know, but it's funny you, you can, as, as writers, it's, it's almost impossible to contort yourself into something you're not, you know, like you can try to like, look at, you can look at the market. I think of like writing to the market, for example, where you sit there and you watch what's selling and it's like, Oh my God, 50 shades of gray. And, maybe if i just wrote like erotica under a pseudonym and but you know what if it's not coming out of you naturally then it's not likely to attract readers i mean i guess it's possible and maybe it's happened here and there but it seems like a you know an unlikely scenario
2: yeah i think i think that's a that's a quick way to fail i think you really have to believe in what you want to write because if you don't believe in it how could anybody reading it believe in it you know you have to really dig in and picture yourself on the deck of a spaceship or you know, hunting the whale or whatever,
1: well yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it that the people who can do that sort of amaze me because I'm sort of I'm in sort of your camp i can't I can't do that <laughs> um I have like a very weird I think little niche sensibility or that's the way that it, that it seems to me, and so I look at somebody um like your dad who's like incredibly prolific or like any number of authors out there you know who are able to to work in those like Really, kind of hyperimaginative realms, and then also able to produce so much, and you know that part of it just seems really daunting to me because I'm slow. <laughs> to say <that>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty slow too. Um, and with the new book, uh, which has to do with B movies of the '60s and '70s and '80s, and it also has a lot to do with independent films of the of the late '90s early early 2000s. Um, I wasn't a filmmaker in college, uh, or I should say, I wasn't a film major or a filmmaker. Uh, I've taken one film class in my life, so I had to uh, spend two, three years just watching stuff on Netflix uh, and, and catching up to sort of filling in the background of all the stuff that I didn't know and reading. And it just takes a, it takes a long time if you want to if you want to write a contemporary novel that has a lot of density. Um, uh, you can't, or at least I couldn't, just write what I knew. There were things I needed to learn, uh, and that's that's time consuming. Yeah. And then you got to write the prose, which is you know time consuming and agonizing. Oh my God! Yeah.
1: So this, how long did it take you to write the book?
2: It took me somewhere between five and seven years. I, I have a I have a, a faint memory of sitting down to, I, I remember I remember pitching the idea to somebody around the time that I sold my first book, which was in. 2004 or three or something like that. So it was on my mind for a long time. And I think I wrote a little piece of it, uh, back when I lived in the city, uh, right after my, my first book came out. But I, then I think I, I but then I know I set it aside to try to write something else, um, for half a year. And it then, didn't work out.
1: That didn't work out. So, I mean, it's just one of those, yeah. one of those books that just sort of like faded on like page 75.
2: Yeah. I, uh, I tried to write a, um, I try not to. Sp- I don't want to speak about this too much because it's so depressing. Uh, but it does have a happy ending because I, I wrote this book. But I did. I spent a half a year trying to write a novel that had to do with uh, the Chernobyl tragedy, and uh, uh, it, it didn't work out for a whole bunch of reasons. The biggest being that I just don't. I, I think you can. I think you can write about something that you don't know, but it's hard to write about something. St- starting from a place where you know nothing. Um, and so I wrote this novel that has a lot to do with filmmaking, and and, uh, and I knew a lot about the places the characters lived, and I knew a lot about the relationships of the characters. But, but the thing I tried to write about, about the Ukraine, uh, you know, I don't speak Ukrainian or Russian or read them. Uh, I didn't know anybody that was there. Uh, it, I'm really bad at the science part of it. It was just about all I had was the characters. Everything else I had to... All I had was the, the not of the idea and the characters and everything else I had to learn, and that was just too much. Um, and plus, so well, plus it was horrible.
1: It kind of seems to me like, uh, you know, you've got, um, you know, a comedic bent to you. You know, your writing is very funny. You're a funny guy. And it doesn't seem like a novel about Chernobyl. I mean, I guess you can always make dark fun. Right. You know, but it, makes, yeah. it seems pretty heavy. You know, it seems like a pretty heavy load to bear for somebody who tries to lace the heavy stuff with some laughs, you know?
2: Yeah, I think, well, I think it was going to be kind of a fable, uh, but I think that it needed to be not kind of a fable. I think it needed to be a fable for it to even come close to working because, uh, you know, even the, uh, just like a little bit of reality and it kind of was more reality than I could manage. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so when, so, they, when that And and then so the, the, the kind of the, the fading of that project, you know, I, I know how that goes. Like when I'm, you're working on a book, it's like it's miserable when it starts to fade or whatever and you realize it's right. not going to work. So um, did that experience and the heaviness and uh, misery of that experience, did that lead then to double feature? You know what I'm saying? Did, can you-
2: oh, yeah, it definitely – well, and I'd already had the idea for double feature and then um, – which wasn't called that for a long time, but uh, – I already had the idea for the book, uh, and like I said, I had written a little bit of it, but I just got excited about this other idea, and then I I poured a half a year into it, or however long it was. Uh, And then the way that that crapped out actually ended up helping to inform the book that I did write, I think. Because the book that I did write, without giving away too much, uh, the access point of the book is that uh, the main character, Sam, uh, he makes a movie in the first part of the book, uh, and then in the second part of the book, you see that the movie that he made uh, became an enormous success, but based on circumstances out of his control, and it's not really what he made. Um, it's a kind of, uh, well, I, to say much more starts to starts to, to spoil it, but it, it's, uh, it has a lot to do with something not working out the way you planned. Yeah.
1: Well, and I've noticed, too, in a lot of the review coverage and a lot of the media coverage that's, um, you know, uh, been happening, people are, people are trying to uh, take a Freudian tack and, like, you know, unpack the book in terms right. of, like, your life and stuff like that. I mean, do you feel – I mean, talk about how autobiographical you feel it is and, like, like, what's it been like to have people trying to kind of, like, pick it apart and figure out, like, you know, how it relates to your personal life?
2: Well, I don't mind it because I expected it, and I think it's totally normal. Um, I I don't I don't uh, begrudge anybody to. Um, because like, the we should we should say for instinct, listeners
1: yeah. we should say for listeners that your protagonist uh, has a, a, a difficult relationship with his father. Right. So there's a you know there's a father son relationship, <clears throat> and both are involved in cinema, and so
2: right you know. right Sam is uh, the main character. Sam is this uh, extremely intense. Uh, I don't want to put too much on him without somebody having read the book, but some people might find him fairly pretentious, uh, guy who wants to make uh, a super earnest uh, independent film about uh, college students and, uh, he has kind of a nifty little trick about the way that it's constructed, uh, his movie about his movie about college students, uh, where, and, and, his father is a B movie actor who had a, who had a major success with a, a sort of chintzy late sixties horror film that played on the back end of a double feature, uh, and, and was, ha, has a certain cachet um, with, you know, modern film geeks. And, and then so, and the so he, guy, and then the character went on to, to be like the, the sort of Donald Pleasance, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Boris Karloff type of secondary actor in lots and lots of B movies that are really embarrassing. And, and all the B movies in the films, uh, many of the B movies in the, in the book are based on real boot, real movies. You know, there's a black exploitation movie and there's, there's some sexploitation movies and lots of horror movies and sci-fi, you know stuff that that booth the father appeared in and so the two of them have this very contentious back and forth uh, ab- about what uh, what is a valid artistic endeavor
1: okay, so you can see where people might draw sure. might draw a line when you were writing this, did you you must have been conscious of uh, or like anticipating that people would draw that line were you playing were you thinking to yourself like, I'm going to mess with people a little bit.
2: <laughs> I don't think I was. I mean, it's funny. I, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I, I read, uh, actually I won't admit this. Let me say this. There's been, there's been, uh, uh people who said, you know, uh, it's a little, it's, it's not something along the lines of it. It's how could you expect people not to make the connection? And it's like, well, you know, I did, I, I, I knew people would think that, but that's, the problem with that is that I think that uh, I could be writing about anything and people would be looking for the autobiographical subtext involving my father. I mean, he's an incredibly famous guy. Uh, I've said this a million times before. Uh, he, he'll be the first line of my obituary, will be that I, I was his son. Um, and so I could be writing about anything. I mean, I could be writing about house painters. I could be writing about uh, India. I could be writing about... Uh, you know anything at all and i think that people would be looking for the stephen king in it uh now i did recognize that that the father-son relationship in this would people would specifically look at that but that was the idea i, I mean i had the idea for the story was about a father and a son and i wasn't going to let that uh, bother me i didn't see how that i how I could, you know, it just was the, it was the story. It is the story of these two guys' relationships. So, um, it doesn't bother me. I totally expected it, but I, I think that, uh, it's, there's an answer that I think some people want that I, I can't give, which is that, uh, I was especially that I was especially concerned with it, or that it was that I had some sort of agenda. I just didn't. The autobiographical elements of the story, though, uh, you know, the father-son relationship isn't very autobiographical. I get along really good with my father and uh, have the greatest respect for the things that he does. Um, but of course, there are autobiographical elements in the book. You know, it's all the places I've lived, for instance, uh, and my college experience has a certain. Uh, has certain parallels with Sam's, but uh, it's not autobiographical in the ways I think that people hope that it will be.
1: Uh, And, you know, you talked earlier about, like, thematically, the book deals with uh, the ways in which we're entertained today, Uh, and I want to get to that, but, like, part and parcel to entertainment culture is fame, you know, and the way Mm -hmm. that fame works. And I actually made a mistake on this show that I regret. I had... Uh, Panio on the show, uh, you know, a while back and he's married to Molly Ringwald and I live in Los Angeles. So I have like proximity to the, f- you know, fame, I think in, in ways that maybe somebody from, uh, you know, North Dakota doesn't, <laughs> sure. uh, but of course it's always like, a, you know, at multiple arms lengths. And so. You know I'm interested in, I've, I've always wanted to ask somebody about this somebody who isn't necessarily super famous themselves but has close proximity or relation to somebody who is and and therefore has seen like reactions all their life. you know what I'm saying and and mm-hmm. what I always notice when I'm out in Los Angeles because I see famous people all the time. They live here and work here and they're at the grocery store or they're hiking or whatever it is. And what I find the the, the great irony that I always describe is like being at the grocery store and seeing Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's there with his dad, and it's like Father's Day. This actually happened to me. And I'm walking down the aisle, and pushing my cart, he's coming towards me, and all of a sudden I found myself giving like an unbelievable performance as a guy who doesn't recognize <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. So it just, it, it, it creates all these strange things, and what I realize is that fame is its own entity. Um, it, like there's the person w- who you don't know, and they're a person, and then there's their fame which is sort of this weird cloud that comes between everybody. (laughs) And so, I don't know, like, what has your experience been? People recognizing your dad when you're a kid or you're out and people coming up to him and, like, asking for autographs and stuff like that. Like, do you have any special insight into it or have you learned, you know, how do you feel about it?
2: Uh, Well, it's a little bit, um... well, I mean, I think that it's not, I'm sure no one would be surprised to hear that it's, it's like a little bit of a bummer like at dinner. <laughs> you know, if you're, uh, <laughs> excuse me, if you're, you know, if you're out at dinner or something like that and, and people come up to the table and ask for autographs, you know, it's a little bit of a bummer. But um, at the same time, uh, you know, people don't do it to, people don't, uh, uh, they don't do it to, to be a bummer. You know what i You know what I mean. Course, like they yeah. do it because they're because they're honestly fans and they're honestly excited. And uh, I think the action is is totally uh, decent at heart. And then on top of it, you know, when you're, uh, for me at least, the people who recognize my father in places and and want to talk to him, and he's very gracious about that kind of stuff. These are the people that put me through college and put clothes on my back and fed me. Uh, And, of course, they've received a a service for the money they paid. They've been entertained and and gotten the books and everything, but I still feel uh, a debt to all those people and feel very grateful uh, for what they've given me. So I'm pretty easygoing about it. Um, I will tell you a funny story. Uh, When I was a – this is my favorite uh, famous guy story uh when i was uh, about 19 after my freshman year of college my father and i were going to take a trip to europe together and uh and go to paris and vienna and venice and visit some people that he knew uh and spend a couple weeks i believe it was a couple weeks and uh before we left uh we we spent the night in boston so we get the transatlantic flight and my dad uh he had grown a mustache And he dyed his mustache blonde because he didn't want to be recognized while he was in Europe. And, uh, the next day we were going downstairs in the elevator to check out and go to the airport. And there was about a six or seven year old boy in the elevator with his, his mother. And he goes, look, it's Stephen King with a mustache. (laughs) And, uh, uh, you know, literally he just died at the night before. It was like the first time out of the room. And, uh, it was, it was kind of brilliant. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, you get used to it. It's not, it's not that big a deal. Well, um, and it's also, you know, I can count on one hand the number of times that somebody has, that I've been with my dad and somebody has approached him and been, been uh, a huge asshole. You know, it, it just doesn't happen that often. And I think it's, I do think it's, it's obviously incredibly tough in Los Angeles. You know, you've got famous people who've got little kids and they're getting chased around by guys that that doesn't seem so hot but uh for me it was never that big a deal
1: well yeah and i mean there's different kind i mean there's like there's like authorial fame and then there's like you know actor fame leonardo dicaprio father yeah yeah Yeah. there's there's different there's different like levels or whatever but it's interesting And, and you know the other thing too that occurred to me is because of horror fiction and that whole genre and the people who get super super into it like some of them can be intense i would imagine I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Like, the you know, I'm thinking of people who get really into, like, monsters and vampires. And Is there any, like...
2: Yeah, you know? I, I don't know about that, man. I think a lot of those people are, are just kitty cats inside. And, and when you meet them, uh, you know, you meet the guy with, like, the the two sleeves of devils uh, tattooed on his arms, you know, yeah. that he... Uh, and with the, like, prosthetic horn on the end of his chin, it, oftentimes it turns out to be totally winning and... Not at all frightening. Once he starts speaking,
1: yeah, it's like oh yeah, it's, it's it's. I find that so fascinating. Like people who kind of like present this really, um, I don't know, threatening. Threatening might be too strong of a word, but you know what I mean. Like a severe present, you know, uh, presence or whatever. But then you they open their mouths and it's like
2: oh, <laughs> yeah, you're you're just uh, you're just like us. <laughs> That's
1: right. Yeah. So uh, with regard to entertainment culture, because uh, you know your book deals heavily with that, I want to I want to hear you talk about. Uh, what entertains us now? Because this is obviously something you've been thinking a lot about as you were writing Double Feature. Like, we live in a... I mean, it's amazing how much things have changed. Like, you can sit there and just think back five, six, seven years ago, and it's sort of staggering how much different things are in a lot of ways with respect to how we spend our time and the screens that we look at and what we're consuming. Mm -hmm. And, like, what did you arrive at, you know, after thinking
2: about this? Well, the book has a lot to do with... With this movie that Sam makes and the viral way in which it spreads and becomes and, t- and lives a life of its own. And what I was thinking about very specifically was all the instances where something goes up on YouTube and everybody loves it, but it's an utter humiliation for somebody else. Uh, and I think of the guy who did the you know, boom goes the dynamite guy, the sportscaster. Do you remember this? Uh, he had the very the very dorky uh, sports catchphrase. He'd he go, boom goes the dynamite when a guy hit a home run. And that was a big YouTube thing. And then, of course, I think everybody, one of the first things that comes to mind is Star Wars kid, uh, you know, rolling around in his garage and pretending to fight invisible, um, uh, invisible monsters with his invisible lightsaber. And, uh, one of the things that was on my mind is just, what is that, what is the meaning of this, uh, that we, and we, and I, and I mean everybody that clicks on YouTube because everybody watches this stuff, uh, even though, even though I think many of us, when we see it, we have pangs of guilt, um, that it's so hilarious to us. What does, what does that say about us as a, as a culture and, just as much, if not more so, what does that mean for the people that were involved? Um, and so a lot of what the book has to do with is what is, what is, what is a person's life after something like that happens? Uh, what do they do with themselves? And that's the second half of the book, that same story. Well, you know, and it's interesting, too. I've been thinking
1: a lot about this like really, really recently. And maybe it has something to do... With like, you know, fatherhood or whatever, but it, it, it comes down to consumption, you know, because we always think of consumption in terms of food or we think of consumption in terms of what we drink, but we don't often think of consumption in terms of what we read or what we watch or what we listen to and what kind of impact that can have. And I'm thinking in particular for me, like being a news junkie. Um, Up until fairly recently, you know, where I was watching, like, multiple news shows and reading multiple newspapers every day, often, like, in a repetitive fashion. Like, it's the same story, you know what I'm saying? Right. And, uh, you know, or it's a viral video or whatever it is. But, the you know, the Internet is obviously a huge component of it. But it's like, what is the effect, you know, when we do this to ourselves? Like, we have to be pretty careful about what we consume, you know? I don't know. It's just... it seems like sort of harmless but then cumulatively it can be the opposite,
2: I think. Yeah, oh, I certainly think with social media it can be uh, for me as a person who works in the creative arts, I don't know, uh, I don't think I can really participate in social media when I'm writing a book. So, you know, since I since I finished my novel You know, over the last year or so, I've been back on social media after not being on for, you know, five or six or seven years. Uh, And so, you know, gearing up and promoting and letting people know about the book. uh, And I think it's great for that. and sort of also great for getting back in touch with people that I hadn't, whose emails I hadn't been, you know, answering for so long. (laughs) Um, You have
1: that discipline. Like you can really just turn it off. You can turn off the spigot, stop answering emails, stop. You know what I'm saying? You can bury yourself (laughs) in your work that way.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll keep doing email, but I won't be able to, uh, you know, when I start the, when I gear back up for the new book, you know, right now I'm, uh, uh, right now I'm researching the book, so it's not quite the same thing, but when I actually sit down and and plunge into it, I probably will be pretty much gone. I'll st- but I still will do email. I'm actually a pretty good email correspondent. That wasn't true. I, I do respond to people's emails. I think it's more, um, uh, it's more more those coastal, you know, other side of the coast relationships and, and people all across the country that I got to know when I was doing the first book. I, I sort of had to let all that go because I knew them through social media and I had to be in a quiet place to, to write the book. And unfortunately, it took me however many years it took me. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well. But I just don't...
2: And I, I, I also recognize that some people, uh, their part-time job... If they're in the creative arts, their part-time job will keep them online in a way that, uh, that, that my part-time work doesn't. But um,
1: What's your part-time work?
2: I do screenwriting. Oh, okay.
1: I didn't know if you were teaching. Um, so,
2: yeah, and I, and, I, and I do teach. Uh, I haven't been for the last couple of years, but before that I did. Um, and that was another reason why I, could, I couldn't possibly do uh, social media because I, I had so many stories to read and to, and to line edit. And you know, there's just no time to do all that plus write a novel plus do anything else it's just you, uh, time's an, too
1: short did you feel any anxiety about not being on like oh i like not that you're missing something great but that you're like i'm not building a readership or i'm not staying mm-hmm. connected or you just like screw it i'm going to go write the best book i can and let the chips fall
2: uh, i felt a it, that's a that's a great question i felt a little bit of anxiety but i also knew that I couldn't get anywhere until I finished the book i just I just had to do it um,
1: Is it pleasure for you to write it, or is it pain I mean I know it's always a little bit of both, but I mean yeah both it, it's both i mean like what is yeah. does one predominate <laughs> like are you are you wincing through most of it? Or are you like smiling through most of it or is it fifty fifty like how do you how do you parse it?
2: I really enjoyed writing the first half of the book, but the second half of the book was hell uh well, hell is you know probably like something else but uh it was difficult <laughs> it was difficult uh there was a lot of there was a middle section in the book where uh i couldn't i couldn't figure out how to there was a sort of middle interlude and i couldn't figure out how to get through it and that took me several months to to write what was a 30 page section uh and up to that time i i had been going in a really pretty good clip Um, So, yeah, there were parts of it that were really, really, really difficult because I knew places I wanted to get to, but sometimes there were things that I needed to figure out on the spot. And the improvisation, it can either go so right or so wrong, and you just have to keep fighting.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and like with most, I mean, I've talked to people on this show who like, you know, they had the the, the fast experience where the novel like shoots out of them in like a rocket, you know, because they've had it kind of, incubating for a long time, but more often than not, it's a, it's a longer process. And if you get involved with a book that, uh, takes some time, uh, there are usually sections of it that elude you and it can get fairly bleak because, um, you know, you go along, like you say, at this really great clip and the things coming to you and you can see it and then all of a sudden you lose it and for people who don't do this i think they don't realize how like traumatic that can feel you know that can be it can feel really scary because you're like oh shit like all this time and energy and now this thing could come undone you know what i'm saying and
2: I, absolutely and that is something that that so many young writers uh, i think are not prepared for is the idea that you need to be willing to spend a couple years on a project and maybe not have it work out. Right.
1: You have to be willing to uh, th- live with that, that uncertainty, yeah. the uncertainty, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's something that I certainly, I don't, I don't remember if you went to an MFA program, but when I, I, I went to Columbia and I had a great experience and, and made lots of friends that I still have and, and learned a lot. But one of the things that was so scary was that you leave and then you're not getting instant feedback anymore. And when you're writing a novel, you're really not getting instant feedback if, you're, if you work the way that I do, which is that you you want to have a substantial thing to show people. Uh, so I worked on my book for, gosh, a couple of years before anybody saw it. So who you, uh, they they may all have thought I was crazy. Well, I mean that's the kind of the way that I am too. I don't like to show like anything. yet. Oh, he's working on his his you know his secret. Yeah.
1: Or like he's working, he's
2: working on his statement in his office again. You know, what is it? His novel in air quotes. He's working. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, but, um, when you do get to the and that, you know, I'm the same way, I don't want to waste anybody's time. And I also don't want to start getting feedback on something that's not, um, at least decently formed because that doesn't help anybody. It's like, you know,
2: uh, you just waste a reader.
1: Yeah. You waste a reader and then you get feedback that probably isn't going to wind up benefiting you all that much. So it just seems pointless. But, uh, when you do get, to the point where you're ready to show, I imagine you show it to uh, your wife. Most most guys who are married, you know, hand the, the manuscript to their wives. Not all, but do you do that? And then who else? I reads? do. Yeah. Does your family like? Are you like, hey, Dad, I wrote a book? We'll <clears>
2: check it yeah, out. I show I show things to my family, but it's that is more. Uh, I'm looking for them to root for me.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's that's what I get. Uh, I show I show what I'm writing to, to my wife, Kelly. Uh, But then I also try to seek out people that seem really smart and generous to me, but they don't have a stake in me personally to try to get to read things. Yeah. It's not Uh,
1: not easy to find good readers. I mean, like, or, you know, not, not good. It's not, it's easy to find some good people, you know, but it's like finding somebody who can really invest and can give you sort of like the, the, the no bullshit take or whatever. It's not always entirely simple, you know?
2: Yeah, and you want to find somebody that will tell you the truth if they think it's terrible. So I try to find smart people that I think will tell me the truth. And are you because ri- they don't know me that well?
1: Are you right? And and you found somebody like that for Double Feature? I, I presume.
2: Yeah, I found a bunch of people that told me it was terrible. So did you? That was good. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I did. I was very, very lucky to get. bunch of different people to look at it and in particular to get uh, a few real film experts to look at the book and uh, tell me what about the technical things about filmmaking whether i would gotten them right or wrong and I was pretty on point with that stuff Uh, and I also got uh, my friend I didn't know him that well when I started but I I think you wouldn't mind me calling him a friend now Uh, my friend Glenn Kenny who used to be the the film critic at premiere gave the book a really smart read, uh, n- not from a filmmaking perspective, but a film interpretation, a cinema interpretation perspective about what was, what the different characters thought about movies, uh, how they were reading them, uh, film facts that, you know, cause he knows everything, uh, and, and not necessarily whether he agreed with the different things that everybody was saying, but whether or not these were things that he thought people would say uh, because like I said, I don't have a background in, in film theory or in film studies. so, did, so he did, was really he was really instrumental late in the process.
1: I was um, gonna say, did any of these people who read like Glenn or anybody else did you know obviously they had an impact in terms of like small brush strokes in improving the book. But did, did anything you got in terms of feedback make you uh, or cause you to make like wholesale changes or like big structural changes to the novel?
2: Well, my editor, Brent Rumble, who's a, a super smart guy and, and really, he had a really good sense of what was about where the narrative was starting to, um, sort of strain at the bolts. And he asked me to make a, one pretty big structural change uh to the back end of the book where uh, that had to do with the time period the original draft of the book it was set during the uh it was set during election day weekend 2012 so I'd written it before Obama got reelected I was just sort of guessing
1: <clears throat> You were guessing that he was going to win?
2: I never said I never oh, said oh, it, okay. it ended be, it ended before the votes came in but that was my suspicion but uh, uh, so Brandt felt like Bringing the election stuff into the second half of the book um, was a little bit extra, uh, a little bit more than the book, even a big book, could carry. And so, everybody still goes to the same places they went to in the second half of the book, but it's but for it's a, it's for simpler, it's for less involved reasons. It has nothing to do with the election. It's just set during 2011. It's set a, a year earlier than I had originally set it, and. Uh, everybody's going to places that they need to go for different reasons other than having to go vote and things like that. So and you feel uh, like- it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't shorten the book that much, but it did, uh, uh, pulled up. It, it pulled a few things in thematically and made it a little less uh, sprawling. And I think that was, that was a really important, smart change.
1: Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's like, you know, I think there's, like, some sense that people have – I mean, some writers are like this. They don't want to hear anything from other people. But for me, uh, there's nothing better than getting a really good note that sort of makes your book book better, saves you from yourself. It's like a relief (laughs) for me.
2: Well, and I'll be curious to hear if you agree with this. I'm going to suspect that you do. But to me, that's one of the great – One of, the, one of the enormous problems with self-publishing and the movement towards self-publishing is that when you talk about taking out the middleman, you're talking about taking out all the people besides the writer who are so vital to making a book good. Um, and when you... Even if you're a really talented writer and even if you hire a copy editor... And even if you have a lot of people who you think are really smart who read your book before you publish it yourself, that's not the same thing as working with a professional editor um, and, and working with a whole office of professional editors who are also giving notes to the editor. Um, and, I, and I think it takes a really uh, – you, you have to be pretty arrogant to believe that you don't need any of that or that your book wouldn't benefit from any of that, or that books in general don't benefit from those things. That makes me kind of crazy. Well, and, um, yeah,
1: and just the idea, the notion that like that, that I, what I think doesn't happen enough is that I don't think people recognize enough how specific a skill uh, editing is. Like, to be a good editor is... Uh, as amazing to me as being like a really gifted writer, like somebody who can look at somebody's, uh, somebody 's somebody else 's work with this really empathic perspective uh creative perspective, and then can um, you know dissect it and help make it better and figure out what 's not working and what is working, and you know all that kind of stuff that 's not easy to do like that is its own skill, and some people are right re- really good at it, the same way that some people are really good at writing dialogue or scaring the shit out of you or writing funny stuff. You know what I'm saying? And so I think people just kind of presume like oh it's just somebody's opinion, but it's 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 more than that, you know.
2: Yeah, I I do think it's more than that and I and I don't know if and I don't know why it seems as though in a lot of ways the music business doesn't strike me as eh as having been damaged in that particular way, I think the music business has been, has the sort of the loosening of the, of the boundaries because of the digital, the digital age. I don't think the music business has been damaged in quite the same way because I think that, uh, I think that the production values that the big record companies added to stuff wasn't always that great. Uh, But publishing is different. Books are like a different, it's a different form, and I do think that um, a lot gets lost uh, when you take the when you take those those editors and the editorial staff out of the mix. I mean, I, I think with music, in some cases, it has damaged things. You know, there are there are great garage bands that would be even greater if if there was more production value. I shouldn't make quite such a sweeping statement, but for publishing, I think it's especially painful.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and I think like, you know, there's, there is kind of like that inevitable shift or it feels inevitable to me where people are going to be kind of running their own shops, but I think smart, some smart writers will probably hire editors to perform that function. Good editors who will work not necessarily, um, you know, under some big tent, but might go independent themselves, you know, and and perform that function on like a freelance basis or whatever. But you know, just to play devil's advocate, I think of TV and I think of a show like Louie where he's got, like, pretty much total control. Like, I don't think they even give him chance, sure. And it's really good, you know. And I don't know who's wa- – I mean, he might have a team of people who are watching it and pushing back and giving him advice and everything else. But, you know, who knows? You know, I, th- I think, like, for me, uh, personally speaking, I like to have people there to push back against me. I don't have that much – faith in my own abilities we just cuz especially with a novel it feels so damn unwieldy you know like there's so much in it it's like i need somebody else's eyes to look at it because you know you you write a novel it takes you like you know what 5 7 years to write a yeah. book and then at a certain point you just can't see it you know <laughs> like it's like time, right. it's time for somebody else to look and make sure that you know they're checking you because uh, you know there's just uh, a lot of moving parts
2: Well, and also, again, I think that gets back to the arrogance of it, which is that somebody like, uh, like Louie is a genius. Uh, somebody like Hillary Mantel is a genius. Somebody like Philip Ross is a genius. You know, they, maybe they don't need editors. Maybe they don't need showrunners or, uh, or somebody chiming in, but they're the exceptions, you know, guys, guys like us, you know, we, we have a lot of belief in our abilities and, and, uh, uh think we're good at what we do, but we're not geniuses, you know. It's 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 a lot to uh it's kind of a big bite to take.
1: Yeah. Well and you know I think I think there's some arguments to be made, you know, where I think sometimes authors or any artist gets to a certain level of success uh in terms of readership or financial success or whatever and there be you know there's less pushback because they have, you know, they've gotten to some plateau and sometimes I think that can cause problems because they have too many yes men around them or, or their manuscripts just go, you know, straight from their desk to the bookstore shelf without much, uh, editing. And, you know, it just, it depends. It's like, you know, it's, it's kind of like on a case by case basis, but I think broadly speaking, you know, we agree. I think it's probably better to have some talented people in there, uh, giving it a read and, and really giving it a real edit. If you want the end product to be as good as possible, you know, so, I want to ask you about how you work because it sounds like you know pretty dogged work ethic. You shut down social media. Are you an everyday writer?
2: <clears throat> I, I am when i uh, when I am writing um, I think over the last about the last year it's all been uh, edits and freelance and uh, research and maybe maybe one short story thrown in there so i haven't really been writing every day but and now now of course the the book took so long but it's a, it's like a distant memory to me now i can't exactly remember how i did it yeah. but i'm pretty sure i was writing every day yeah pretty pretty dedicated to it
1: i mean you have to be i mean you get into a rhythm so it's like seven days when you're in it you're in it every single morning
2: yeah, and, and my computer doesn't go on the internet. My writing computer, and I wear noise blocking headphones, and and you just, uh, I, I'm, I think other people, they have better attention spans. They probably can be a lot looser about these kind of things. But I have to be pretty strict with myself.
1: Um, you're, you're in a sensory. And if
2: that here. doesn't sound any, doesn't sound like it's very much fun. You know, a lot of times it isn't. But it's fun when it goes well, and that's what makes it worth it.
1: Yeah. That's good, though. I like, See, I, like, I admire your discipline because like, I'm kind of similar. Like, I need a little bit of sensory deprivation. Uh, and I could stand to be better about unplugging from the Internet. And I'm a big fan of noise-canceling headphones. I always say, like, there are a lot of pieces of technology that I really like, but w- one of the ones that I think is most useful is noise-canceling headphones. I love them.
2: <laughs> they're amazing. Yeah. Um, I just uh, They're so great, and especially if you live anywhere near nothing will destroy your your zone more than say construction noise
1: Oh God yeah you just
2: gotta have those things and uh, and I can't I know people that write with music on I can write screenplays with music on but I can't write prose. sentences are too the descriptive sentences are too hard I just have to be I have complete silence
1: Like sensory deprivation like just a, yeah I need like a blank white wall, a laptop and like a lot of caffeine.
2: <laughs> exact tons of caffeine.
1: Uh, and then what about like, uh, you know, cause this is something that I think a lot of listeners might be able to relate to. Cause I think a lot of writers tend to be in relationships with other writers. Like how do you balance? Like, do you and your wife have to like trade writing times and stuff like that? Like, are you, you guys pretty, obviously are pretty good about letting mm-hmm. each other work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, you have to be very supportive of the other person. It's, it wouldn't work any other way. Uh, it's hugely beneficial to have somebody who's so smart and such a good stylist read my work at an early stage, uh, and it's hugely beneficial to have somebody that understands uh, all the frustration. Um, unless you're, uh, one thing I didn't realize when I when I was just starting out as a writer um, was just rejection is never ending. Even it, for- Unceasing. I was going to you have to be really fucking successful not to get rejected all the time. Yeah. I
1: mean, cause I was going to say like, you know, uh, um, you know, coming from this big literary family and everything, like, has it made it any easier? Like do people, are people more receptive because your dad is Stephen King? Have you felt any of that? Or do people often assume that it's easier for you than it actually is? Uh, oh,
2: I, uh, it, it's easier for me in some ways, but I think in, in a lot of ways it's harder. I, I think it's, Uh, it would be disingenuous for me to, I I don't know this, but it would be disingenuous for me to say that I don't get, uh, a read at times when other people might not because people are curious and the name rings a bell. Um, although I do, I do like to think I'm kind of at a place in, in my career now, you know, where I've published a couple books where most places would at least give me a you know, read the first page. Um, but at the same time, I think that writing the things I write, there's no supernatural elements. Uh, it's not... doesn't have all that much in common with, with Stephen King, the idea of Stephen King anyway. Um, that That doesn't make every editor jump up and down that idea. Um, um, so it, I get rejected all the time. Um, and me. I'm sure some people would say that's, you know, because you're not good. But I mean, I, I, I think that that's talking to friends. My sense is it's uh, universal.
0: Yeah,
1: no, I mean, yeah, there's not a not really <laughs> truly you have to be a pretty rare writer to not have gone through that or to not go through that with some regularity, especially if you're producing and you're trying things. So when you say, uh, rejection, are you talking about like novel manuscripts, uh, journalism things like short story submissions, all that stuff,
2: everything, everything, everything gets passed on. Sometimes I, have never, I've, I've had, um, precisely one, uh, story ever get accepted on the first try by anyone ever. Um, I've had lots of pitches, you know, for reviews or, or pieces get accepted on the first try, but I've only ever once had written a short story, sent it to a journal and had, uh, and had it get placed on the first try. And I think that's really common.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's actually, you know, I think people will probably be maybe relieved to hear that or something. I think people will probably presume that it's just easier or something for you, but <laughs> in, a way, in a way, it's nice to hear that it's hard for everyone. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, I, I remember I had, uh, I, I'm good friends with a with a wonderful writer named John McNally. I had edited, up, edited a book of short stories with him a few years ago, and I had just gotten a series of rejections on a story that I really believed in and thought was really good, and I, I emailed John, and I said, John, this is a really pathetic question, um, and just don't answer it if I'm you know, if this makes you lose, you know, all respect for me, but do people still reject you? And he was like, yes. (laughs) was his answer was just, yes, period. (laughs) And, uh, uh, and if you know, John, it was, it was, uh, that was enough, you know? Um, it's, it's really part of it. It's a big part of it. And, and I mean, really good writers who write really good things get rejected all the time. Um,
1: Well, and you know, it should be said, it's like part of being in this profession or in any creative art profession where you're creating stuff and putting it out there for public consumption or for public criticism or whatever, um, or for rejection by the gatekeepers. It just comes with the territory and what what else can you say about it? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like that's, that's what you sign up for when you do it. And it should also be said that people, uh, you know, who have great success or huge readerships, um they get you know they get you know this as well as anyone they get um shit on in the press and they deal with their own fair share of it one way or the other it's not like it's all just rose petals falling down
2: you know <laughs> right yeah it's it's not but uh it's nice when it is
1: yeah exactly so uh you said you have another novel cooking is that correct like at least yep. early stages can you give us any sense of like broadly what it's about
2: ah uh, well i'm researching uh, some things about minor league baseball So that's it has it has something to do with that, Um, and I have some script things that feel like they're in promising places. I can't say anything more than that because it's you know they're always in promising places and it never works out. But I'm 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 feeling unusually optimistic of late. So we'll see we'll see what happens with that stuff and feature uh,
1: film stuff. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's always weird. It's like it's not real until like. The, key, the check is cashed. <laughs>
2: you know, like, yeah, and there's a there's a graphic novel thing I'm involved in right now that I I feel really really hopeful about. So that's that's maybe the other thing. And and you know one of the one aspect of, of having uh, another writer in the family is my wife's book, Kelly Brassett. Her book comes out in August. Her new book. And Jesus,
1: what a year! Uh, for, what a year for you guys!
2: I, it's a crazy year, and to me that feels like um. I am as excited if not more excited about that uh, than I am about my own book because I don't know she made it it's it's sort of like when you work when you write your own book you know you're so aware of all its failings and you're so aware of, of all the places that you you just spackle over relentlessly um, at some point it's it, it's hard to love it the way that you once did when you started whereas whereas Kelly's book uh, I I get to love it without any misgivings.
1: Plus, like when it rolls out, like I mean, I, I guess it's your wife, so you'll be anxious and you'll have some anxiety too. But it's like it's nice to just be the the, the cheering section, you know, as opposed
2: to. Oh yeah, it's awesome.
1: <laughs> um. Wow. And then, like, I also like the way that you put that spackling over. There's a lot of spackling in novels that if you you know most people don't see, but it's like I'm very aware of the spackling.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's hard to get over it. I I look at I I can open any page of my book and be like, "Wow, this is I wept over this."
1: <laughs> um all right, man. So, final question. Uh growing up, childhood, your father's a very gifted horror writer. Did he scare the shit out of you guys with like horror stories at night before bed or anything?
2: No, I get this question all the time. Um and I think that I think the expectation is that my dad was reading us like uh you know, Dracula at bedtime <laughs> and, uh, uh, that never, that never happened. Um, uh, he
1: wasn't particularly scary. Like he,
2: no, no, he's not. He's not a particularly scary guy. And, uh, um, yeah, he's fu- He's funny in person. So it, our, our bedtime stories are funny.
1: Okay. Well, it's on the record now. I had to ask it. Just see, I could, no, just, it's fun. I had this sort of, uh, I had this sort of vision of you under the covers, but just shitting your pants. Cause I can, I can tell you right now, I read the shining when I was in seventh grade and I remember distinctly being in my living room and having to read the end of it while sitting in a living room with my family while they were watching television and all the lights were on. So he scared the shit out of me.
2: <laughs> have you, I know this is a family show, but since you brought it up, have you ever shit your pants in fear? No, I have not. <laughs> I, I haven't either. Um, I, I don't. I probably know somebody that has, but I don't. In some ways, it's better not to know because you know if somebody shit their pants in fear, it's like a horrible story. <laughs> <laughs> I uh,
1: that's still it's still on my to do list. It hasn't happened yet, and uh, I hope it doesn't ever happen. That would be nice. I'd love to get through life without that happening, but I suppose uh, I suppose it's possible in this day and age.
2: Um. Yeah, I could go further with this subject but maybe we'll just leave it we'll just leave it there (laughs) that's a great place to end it really is yeah it is it's a nice
1: place to end and uh owen i'm uh super happy for you congratulations on all the success with this new book double feature and best of luck with uh the new baseball book the screenplay projects everything um it's been great talking with you
2: Thanks, Brad. I hope I
1: see you when I'm in L.A. All right, you guys. There it is. That is it. That is the program. That is Owen King. Go get his new novel. It's called Double Feature. It's available now from Scribner. Uh, You can find Owen online at owen-king.com, and he's on the Twitter where his handle is at owenkingwriter. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app, available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download uh, episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorite episodes. You can access the show's full archives, etc. So please go get the app. It's free. And if you want to email me to criticize me or to lavish praise upon me, or if you just want to tell me a story, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And uh, what else? Did you enjoy the bad sex reading at the top of the show? Was that satisfying? Was it a reach? Did you like the music? I don't know. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, to deliver some quality entertainment for you. Just trying to come up with material on a twice-weekly basis. And I'm a one-man band. Please remember that Jean-Michel Basquiat died of a heroin overdose at age 27, and that Allen Ginsberg claimed all throughout his life to have once been accosted by the apparitional voice of William Blake immediately after masturbating. That is all for now, folks. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for spreading the word about the show. I'll be back on Wednesday with yet another episode, another conversation, another dialogue, another monologue, etc. In the meantime, uh, if you're a writer, please write from your gut. Please write from your heart. Please write from the pit of your desecrated soul. Don't chase the market. Don't write erotica for housewives. I don't know. actually do write erotica for housewives. Is that if that's what you want to write uh, or if you're about to get evicted, in which case do whatever it takes. I'm not here to judge you. I am not here to judge you silently.